Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner, making the world a better place through business, Raj Sasodia. Hey there, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good morning from a rainy Monterey. A rainy Monterey, a cloudy London, and we've got our guest today, Ken Pucker, in Boston, Sunny Boston. Sunny Boston. Sunny Boston. Good. Well, let me introduce Ken. Ken is an operator, advisor, and investor and an educator with a focus on sustainability and ESG. He's the professor of practice at the Tufts Fletcher School. Ken also serves at Berkshire Partners and Investment Group as an advisory director, where he's a member of the firm's Responsible Investment Committee. He's the published author in periodicals such as the Stanford Social Innovation Review, Institutional Investor, and the Harvard Business Review. He's a board member of King Arthur Baking, Rag and Bone, the Commonwealth School, Mighty Earth, and the High Meadows Institute. One of the things I love about Ken is that he spent most of his professional career working at Timberland, um, one of the very early companies that was held up as being a socially responsible and a really good company. He served as the COO there from 2000 to 2007. And during his tenure, Timberland grew by tenfold to over 1.6 billion in sales. So the value that Ken brings us is that he's thought about these things really hard, but he also comes from the perspective of having been in the driver's seat and having to practice it. Ken Pucker, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. It's been great. So um, there's a lot of different things we can jump into, and maybe I want to begin with your journey at Timberland. Um particular during that period when you were there in the knots, when Timberland was really being held up as one of the great businesses. And it certainly inspired me early on to be thinking, oh, this is what's possible. What? Tell us a little bit about that journey and, and how that came about for you personally and your experience of being COO of a great business. Well, uh, the journey was one of good fortune for me. I don't know how many of your listeners know the story of Timberland, but it's instructive, I think. Timberland is a, uh, a brand and a company whose story can be told generationally. It was its predecessor company was founded by Nathan Swartz, who is a Jew who fled Russia due to religious persecution with a fourth grade education and came to Roxbury, Massachusetts as a cobbler and started a shoe company called Abingdon Shoe, which made low end women's private label shoes that were sold to low-end department stores in the U.S. at the time, like Kmart, Caldor, uh, Walmart equivalent. Um, he ran that factory for many years and passed it on to his two sons, Herman and Sidney. At the time, it was still called Abingdon Shoe. Herman was uh, educated and an accountant, and Sidney gambled away his tuition money first week of college, sophomore year at University of Maine, hitchhiked home, and his father gave him a broom. And so he uh, became the manufacturing guy. And the two of them ran the private label shoemaker for a number of years, recognized that there was very little margin to be earned there, and out of thin air created this brand called Timberland. They had a, a next door neighbor who's a graphic designer who came up with the name and the logo. And they placed it on a boot, which was innovative at the time, which created a unique waterproof seal between the midsole, the mid portion of the boot, and the upper. Uh, and impregnated the leather of the upper um, with silicone. So you had a waterproof seal for the first time. And they made them yellow, which at the time wasn't a conventional color for a work boot. And so uh, got a lot of attention originally with working men and women, and then ultimately um, students in the Northeast who were interested in the protection uh, that a waterproof seal engendered. 
and they had a great deal of success. In 1985, VF Corporation came to the two brothers and offered $60 million to buy the company. And the accountant, Herman, said 60 divided by two is 30. Uh, I'm done. And Sidney said, I want to keep doing this, and but didn't have $30 million to pay out his brother. So the company went public via Merrill Lynch in 1986. Uh, mercifully for the Swartz family, they had a very good lawyer who created a capital structure that enabled them to maintain control. They had class B shares with 10 to 1 voting rights. And Sidney became the sole CEO at the time. When he turned 60, he passed his keys on to his son, Jeff, the third generation of the family, to lead the company. And near, in about the year 2000, and when Jeff became CEO, I became COO. Um, and Sidney retired. Um, he became chairman. And um, Jeff was different from his grandfather and father in that he was a polymath who was incredibly bright, who was overeducated. He was Brown pre-med and then went to Tuck for graduate school. And um, by the time he became CEO, I think he was bored with the traditional part of running a shoe and boot company um, because he was so smart uh, and introspective. And he needed more to motivate, I think, himself to stay connected than just commerce. And so he reoriented the mission of the company in the year 2000, which is a long time ago, to this notion of commerce and justice. And justice is a word that one doesn't often hear today, 23 years later in a business context. But for Jeff, justice had three components, global human rights, citizen service, and environmental stewardship. And on every one of those dimensions, Timberland funded efforts through the company, not through a foundation, to try to become at least a top quartile player uh, in both commerce, traditional measures, and justice. And he did and led great things. So in terms of global human rights, Timberland was the had the strictest code of conduct in our industry. Um, we were one of the first brands in the footwear apparel space to only abide by third-party unannounced audits. Um, in terms of uh, citizen service, Timberland was the first publicly traded company in the world to provide employees with 40 hours of paid community service. We hosted an urban youth corps in our headquarters called City Year. And at every event globally, instead of playing golf at sales meetings, Timberland would conduct service events. So if we were in Prague and there was a flood for a sales meeting, we would do a service event and clean up the, for the flood. If we were in Immokalee, Florida for a sales meeting, we would work with migrant farm workers. Uh, so it depended on where we were. It was always bespoke to the location, but that was all Jeff's vision. And when it came to environment, uh, we did a lot of things. Timberland installed one of the largest solar arrays in the state of California at the time at our distribution center. By the way, this was when solar was uneconomic. Uh, Timberland powered its factories with renewable energy um, and did a whole bunch of other things that were wildly progressive for the time. We uh, also became the first com public company to issue not just CSR reports. Timberland's first CSR report was in the year 2001. I think the first one issued ever by a company was 1999. And I'll leave it to you to guess which company issued that. But Timberland was early in terms of issuing CSR reports, but then became the first public company to invite outside critics to mm -hmm. publish in our own CSR reports, unedited, and also issue quarterly CSR reports in keeping with financial reporting. And so I um, was more the commerce guy, honestly, than the justice guy. Uh, in order for Jeff to speak at Davos or Thousand Points of Light and things like that and proselytize for this notion of commerce and justice, we needed the commerce part to work because no one wants to hear from a CEO who's not delivering on traditional measures. And I'm oversimplifying some, but not a ton. And so I was a beneficiary uh, and a learner along this journey. I was certainly not an architect, um, but it aligned with my values. And so I was very fortunate to spend time there and serve there. Well, I, I love that um, that perspective because I think that too often the commerce and social good discussion becomes more the social good discussion and not, not enough the commerce. So I'm curious, you know, um, some of the things you cited, for example, solar power at a time when it's not economic. How did you balance that idea of this purpose and profit? Because ultimately, there were things you were doing on the purpose side that were significantly increasing some of your costs. How in sure. your COO world did you balance that? It's a great question. And I can 
best illustrate with a story. Um, Jeff was many great things. One thing that was a bit frustrating was he typically would overbook himself. So he would book two or three meetings often at the same time, even trips in different cities. And the way he compensated by this is by when he figured out he had a problem turning to me and say, you go do this. So I was like the junior varsity and he was the varsity. And one time he double booked and there was a meeting, a presentation he'd scheduled to give at Stern School in New York. And they had a school focused on retail in their business program. And so he said, I can't do it. You have to go. So I said, OK, what's the topic? And he said, well, talk, talk about commerce and justice. They want to hear about Timberland's purpose agenda and why it works well. So I did my thing. And the great thing about presenting at business schools is kids are, you know, full of piss and vinegar and um, not shy about asking anything. And mm. so uh, one kid raised his hand in the back and he said, um, quick question, are you a member of the Swartz family to me? And I said, no, no, I'm not. And he said, well, I think you should be fired. And I said, well, I'm glad you're not my boss, but tell me why. And he said, because... Um, you just said you spend a million dollars a year supporting this urban youth corps called City Year. Is that right? And I said, I, yeah, we outfit the corps. There's four members across the country. There's a corps in South Africa. And he said, but that's shareholders money. You know, who are you to make a judgment about how to allocate shareholders money? If they want to give to City Year, you can issue dividends and they can you know, give that money to City Year. Who are you to make that judgment? And I said, it's a fair question. I said, tell me, what did you do before you came to business school? And he said, I worked at IBM in Italy. And I said, terrific. I said, what did you do there? And he said, I was uh, in the marketing function, which made my heart swell. And I said, OK, so um, tell me about marketing budget last year. What did you spend it on? He said, well, we did a novel $10 million TV campaign. And I said, terrific. Tell me, how did you measure success? Mm. He said, well, it's very difficult. You know, I mean, when you do TV, it's top of the funnel. It's it's not, you know, there's, it's harder to make the numbers work on attribution to longer term investment. But, you know, over time, we thought the metrics in terms of what we learned were very positive. Mm. OK, mm. Um, think about the investment and choice you're making, and how you made that judgment versus the investment choice and judgment we're making around City Year. We're doing it because uh, City Year actually uh, orchestrates all of our uh, service events globally the ones I was describing earlier. Um, they wear Timberland boots and jackets in every city in which they appear. We house a core in our headquarters in New Hampshire. And mm. part of City Year's appeal to us is it's a manifestation of our values in action. And we believe that as a result of affiliations like the one with City Year, we're able to recruit and retain a workforce that's three or four notches above what we should as a billion and a half dollar footwear and apparel company. And I can't prove that to you any more than you can prove to me that your TV commercial you know, generated uh, a great ROI. And so jobs we make in business aren't always, you know, uh, uh, reducible to a spreadsheet. You can try. I can put numbers in the spreadsheet if you'd like about retention and recruitment and brand value and that kind of thing. But they're made up um, and just like yours are going to be. And so we make these judgments and you make judgments and ours are different from yours. But that doesn't mean I think that I should be fired, because if you look at our our, our metrics on a traditional basis, yeah. we're outperforming our peers. I love that. The arrogance of that question and sort of the, uh, you know, the, the MBA mindset is just that's what struck me for a student to say that to somebody, uh, you know, there's no respect there. There's no curiosity. Right. And, but, but, you know, we've indoctrinated students in such a narrow way in business schools. I've been teaching again since 1985 and yeah, we are a big part of the problem. You're great business schools. I know you're, you're now affiliated with uh, Tuff, right? Yes. I teach at the Tufts Fletcher school, uh, which is interesting because it's not just a traditional business school like HBS or Stanford, you know, it, it focuses on international affairs and diplomacy. Um, mm -hmm. And so the reach, I teach a business class, but the reach of the student body is different. You have diplomats, you have people from the military, you do have business people, you have social entrepreneurs. So it's a wider swath. And I think um, I'm impressed with how the school has begun to consider uh, sustainability as part of their mandate. And that I think in large part has to do with their leadership. But I think your point is 
right in general, in my experience, is that business schools still struggle, even today, to figure out the role of, quote, sustainability in curriculum. Uh, it should it be taught as an a part of an accounting class and a part of a marketing class and a part of a finance class? Should it be its own vertical with, you know, a certification or a degree? Um, should it be a requirement or shouldn't it? How do we think? And so I think it's very messy and I think it's um, pretty diffuse how it's taught. And I think it's reasonably disappointing. Um, the way I focus on it is uh, probably different than other places. And I don't know if you want me to get into that or not, but I'm happy to share uh, how I try to approach it, if you'd like. Well, I'd love to get into that in a, in a moment. Um, but I want to finish the chapter on Timberland. So, you know, it's the the mid 2000s. You're you're doing really well. You're outperforming industry standards, and you're doing a great job. So, uh, on the purpose and sustainability front, so it's 2007. What what happened towards the end of that time? And and tell us about catch us up with where Timberland has gone since then. So. I'm going to challenge some of the good that you, the flowery language that you threw at Timberland. Um, yes, Timberland did outperform uh, peers, both in terms of uh, traditional financial metrics and in terms of its purpose agenda. And yet at the same time, after I left, I was able to reflect on how good we were relative to not just peers, but relative to need. And mm. so I'll give you a concrete example. Um, Timberland reported on its carbon emissions, which I view as an existential uh, uh, metric to track. And in the last seven years I was there when I served as chief operating officer, our revenue grew double digits every year and our carbon emissions came down double digits every year. So on an intensity basis, we did really well. And mm. you could say, well, okay, that sounds terrific. What's the problem? Well, the problem is and this gets a little wonky for listeners, but uh, carbon is measured according to the greenhouse gas protocol across three scopes, scope one, two, and three. And scope one are your direct emissions. So it's the emissions from driving cars and corporate travel and stuff like that. Scope two is purchased electricity. And scope three is everything else, 15 categories of upstream and downstream emissions. And in a footwear and apparel company or retail company, about 95 plus percent of emissions are scope three. They're in the value chain. They're mostly in the supply chain upstream, and they're mostly for footwear companies in uh, tier four and tier three manufacturers. Leather manufacturer, for example, for us was a big source of emissions. Uh, in apparel, it's different. It's more the dye houses and the finishing houses, tier two and tier three. But what we reported on, where I told you we decreased our emissions by double digits each year, were scope one and two emissions. So mm -hmm. we were cutting our 4% of our profile, 96% for us were scope three, 4% was scope one and two. We were cutting the 4% by 10 or 11% a year. And that's what we reported on. And we were heroes, by the way, for doing that. We hmm. did actually, we, were, we fully disclosed in our reports that we were only measuring scope one and two. Why weren't we measuring scope three? Well, because to measure scope three, we needed to track more than 50,000 data points every six months for which there wasn't information, nor was there software transit points between uh, tier two and tier three factories, emissions in tier one factories, for example, that had to be allocated to different brands because we shared factories with partners. It is a very complicated exercise. It's not mandated. So in the US, you can choose to report on what you want to report on. You don't have to have your reports audited. So some brands report in scope one, some report in scope one and two, some report across all three scopes. Back then, very few companies reported across all three scopes. Mm. And so here we were getting awarded. We got a presidential award for community engagement and environmental service. We won business ethics award, best company in the U.S. or one of the best top 10 companies in the U.S. for 10 straight years. We were Fortune 500 best company to work for. Okay, And yet, I'm telling you, we were only measuring 4% of our profile and we were winning awards. And that's unfortunately hasn't changed all that much in the intervening 15 years since I left the company. If you look today, just at public companies, mind you, there are a lot more private companies than there are public. But if you look at just U.S. public traded companies, less than half 
today, 15 years later, report on their scope three emissions. And less than half of those have any formal audit of their data. This is today. So this existential metric, we have lots of metrics we track in the world of sustainability. This one that's existential, I mean, there are a couple, but this one certainly is, is uh, really, really poorly tracked. Now, the good news in the U.S., at least, is that that's has to change now because of regulation. In the state of California, they just passed legislation that requires companies above either $500 million or a billion dollars in revenue, depending on the reg, to report on their scope one, two, and three emissions annually. So if you're a public company of that scale, you won't have a choice anymore, which I think is good. It's not sufficient, but it's good. Is that for companies headquartered in California or for any company that does business in California? It's for any business that does business in California. Go up. And it's not revenues in California. It's global revenues if you choose to do business in California. They have preempted essentially the SEC. The SEC has been considering for more than two years now a regulation to require the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they put out a policy recommendation and they've received over 15,000 comments on that policy recommendation with a lot of pushback from industry saying this is too complicated. Um, But it doesn't much matter now what the SEC says because California is the fourth largest economy in the world. And if someone wants to sell in California, they have to provide this information. The EU is actually requiring it as well for certain size companies. And so it's very late in the game, but at least as relates carbon emissions reporting and disclosure, not action, they're different, no. but reporting mm-hmm. and disclosure, there is going to be a reckoning. Mm, I love that. Um, I, and I love that for a couple of different reasons. One is that you know we're, we're now going to maybe probably switch over to some of the, the work you've been doing recently which is expanding on this discussion. In essence, what you measure is what you get at some level. And you have a particular take on the ESG world and the ESG metrics that I I really resonate with, but it's kind of contrarian to the popular quote-unquote approach to ESG. Um, Maybe introduce that at a high level, and then I'd like to talk very specifically about an example that you and I spoke about beforehand, but but just maybe just give us the the broad approach, and then I'd like to drill into this one particular fund as a good example. Okay, uh, I'll try. Um, ESG as a concept has been around since two thousand four. It was it first showed up uh, as a output of work that Kofi Annan did on the Global Compact. He got 18 financial institutions together who wrote a report in 2004 called Who Cares Wins? And that was where the term environmental and social governance investing first appeared. It was at the time intentionally opaque. The authors of that uh, publication essentially said, you know, ESG investing can be a great way for investors to assess risk of companies to enhance shareholder returns. At the same time, they also said ESG investing could be a great way to advance the sustainable development goals and ensure planetary welfare. And so it wasn't clear exactly. It was both things. Was it one? Was it about shareholder primacy? Was it about fix the planet? Not clear. But it was certainly a way for a recommendation for investors to engage in understanding measures apart from traditional financial measures. Mm -hmm. And at the time, very few people paid attention. There was an investment movement that had started long before called uh, SRI or social responsible investing, yeah. which was principally about negative screen. You know, if you're doing business in South Africa, for example, as a company, you know, as an SRI investor, you might not want to invest. If you're a tobacco company, if you're a fossil fuel company, et cetera. But it was really just negative screen. And so ESG became part of the vernacular starting in the year 2004, and very little happened. Uh, mm. You have to roll the tape forward until about a decade later. And the reason very little happened is the prevailing wisdom on Wall Street was that companies that invested in ESG or sustainability or corporate social responsibility, those investments were drags on profit performance. And by the way, to intersect these two stories, I can tell you as a matter of fact that when I was at Timberland, which is the same time period, Jeff, the Mm. CEO, devoted fully one third of his remarks every 90 days to Timberland's justice agenda. 
So when he and the CEO, CFO reported to Wall Street, they reported on traditional measures. Jeff, two-thirds of his remarks were about the business, our order book, our innovation pipeline, our gross margins. A third was the justice agenda. I sat next to him for 28 straight quarters. He never got one question, okay, across seven years on that third of his remarks. And it got to the point that we had semi-annual analyst meetings as well. And after going to them for two or three times, Jeff said, I'm not going anymore. I said, what do you mean? You're the CEO. You know, you have your investors here. You have to go. He said, no. You know, ultimately, they'll make a judgment based on our performance, but they don't care about what I have to say. And so I'm not going. And once again, he sent the junior varsity because he thought it was a waste of his energy. Um, and that was, you know, 2000, early 2000s, right? After the CSG report came out, no one on Wall Street thought it was a good idea. They thought it was net negative. Um, in two, mid 2010s, 2014, 2015, 2016, two reports came out of Harvard, okay? Um, one was a study that looked at 90 twin pairings of companies. So twins meaning Wal Walmart and Kmart, or um, you know, the same industry, same type of business, same relative size, et cetera. And they dubbed these companies high and low sustainability companies and looked at their returns over an 18-year period. Um, Bob Eccles, George Seraphim, a number of other people at Harvard did this report. And they found that for the first five or six years, returns were about the same, high and low sustainability companies. And after about year six, there's this divergence. And if you map it out over 18 years, the high sustainability companies outperformed the low by 480 basis points. And wow, that is a big number on Wall Street. Okay, If you can find 480 points of uh, basis points of outperformance, that's a monster. Years yep. later, a couple of years later, George Seraphim did a report on called First Evidence of Materiality um, that looked at, well, what if we break this down further and say, by industry, which companies were focusing on immaterial versus material sustainability factors for their specific industry? So, for example, an accounting firm, whether they use a lot or a little water is probably not a big deal. Their travel yep. probably matters. You know, for a footwear and apparel company, you know, their emissions are probably a big deal. Their uh, attention to uh, code of conduct and labor issues is probably a big deal. So specific to each industry, who's focusing on material versus immaterial factors? And he found that companies that were focusing on material factors outperformed those focusing on immaterial factors by 600 basis points. And so all of a sudden, <laughs> Wall Street started to pay attention. And they, they, they thought, wait a minute, if in fact we've been wrong and mm -hmm. sustainability marries, with better equity returns, we can package this into an idea that's really consistent with um, investor psyche right now, because investors are increasingly concerned about the planet, any human is. Uh, money is transferring uh, generationally to millennials and to women who are more concerned about these issues. And by the way, asset managers had a huge problem at the time which was, if you remember, there was an enormous shift going on from actively managed funds to passively managed funds. And, yep. and the, the, the gross margins of the asset management industry contracted by about 500 basis points over this period. ESG was a perfect answer. What if you could package this idea that doing well leads to doing good? You can invest behind your values and make more money. And by the way, we, on the asset management side, charged fees about 40% higher than we did for our, our traditional funds. So you make money, we make money, the planet gets better. Who wouldn't love this idea? And so they started to market ESG funds. And uh, it was started slowly, but kind of in the year 2019, 2020, 2021, massive ramp up of yeah. a number of ESG funds, rebranding of traditional funds as ESG funds, additional AUM pouring into the category, mostly in Europe. People miss mm. this. Okay. In the US, US is about 10% of ESG AUM. Europe is about 80. Okay. So it's overstated about how big it is in the US. And by the way, it's overstated overall. We can get to that if you'd like to talk numbers. But that's the story of how ESG got famous. It was yeah. a win-win-win. Right. For asset yeah. managers, for the investor and for the planet. And for about two or three years, it actually worked pretty well because returns of ESG funds did outperform traditional funds, which only caused more money to flow in, 
which made it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if funds are flowing, it's going to cause those equity values to go up. And so everyone was really happy. Well, if you roll the tape forward to this year, ESG funds have underperformed traditional funds by 640 basis points year to date. And if you look cumulatively over the last five years now, ESG funds have underperformed traditional funds. And so the bloom came off the rose at the same time there was political theatrics in the U.S. about you know, whether ESG funds are woke and all this crazy stuff, which isn't relevant. But the the bloom came off the road because performance actually suffered. Now, if you so that's the kind of ESG 20 year run. Um, We can talk about how big or small it is separately. But I will tell you that from my perspective, the contrarian take I have is that ESG um, funds do not deliver alpha and never will. That's market outperformance. I'm happy to describe why. But more importantly, ESG funds have nothing to do with planetary welfare. Nothing. So even though they're called ESG, which from a retail consumer standpoint or investor standpoint means environmental, social, those are things I think I want to be behind. Yeah. It's nothing to do with the welfare of the planet. And you say, why? The simplest answer, I can go into detail, but the simplest answer is this. ESG funds are secondary market vehicles. Okay, so let's say, Raj, you own Facebook stock and want to sell it and I'm an asset manager and I buy it from you. Okay, you sell your Facebook stock. I give you money. I put it in my fund. Facebook got no money. Okay, Uh, or uh, Timothy, you own Tesla and you don't want you want to sell Tesla and I want to buy. No problem. Tesla didn't get any of that money. It's a secondary market transaction. There's nothing that happened to Tesla. You're not reallocating primary capital into businesses that need it that are green businesses. It's just moving money around. And so there's many other reasons. But for that reason alone, ESG investing has nothing to do with planetary welfare. Yeah, I I love that. I mean, I think in your article that was in Harvard last year, Harvard Business Review, ESG investing isn't designed to save the planet. And and in that you sort of say, you know, there's, you know, there's a requirement of about three and a half trillion dollars to sort of really make progress. You have to invest that amount of money into real assets, into real change. If we really want to make a difference uh, right now in terms of the environment. And then you make the point that that is very different from the trillions that are flowing into ESG for the reason you just cited that it's a secondary market, it's just changing hands of shares versus real investment. And then you go on, and I'd like you to talk about this a little bit. You give us a very specific example of BlackRock. Now, this is a mouthful, right? This is, this is a real marketing nightmare, but BlackRock's U.S. Carbon Readiness Transition Fund, and they go out and start marketing this as a way to save the environment, and you have a take on that. So I... I don't mean to just pick pick on BlackRock, though they're an instructive case. Um, they're one of many asset managers who are mm. marketing funds with titles similar to the one you just described. What's interesting about the BlackRock U.S. Carbon Readiness Transition Fund is when it launched, it launched as the biggest ETF ever launched on a single day. Okay, mm. uh, in April, I think of 2022, um, and if you go to your uh, computer now and Google BlackRock U.S. Carbon Readiness Transition Fund, you can pull up the prospectus and see on the prospectus in 10 seconds what they're investing in. So here I have it in front of me and it's got, I literally did it just now. And here's their top 10 holdings, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, NVIDIA, Alphabet, Meta, Alphabet, MasterCard, Tesla, Berkshire, Hathaway. And so you said, well, well, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought U.S. Carbon Transition Readiness Fund would be Orsted and battery manufacturers and Tesla Shure and, you know, other companies that are helping us decarbonize. U.S. Carbon Readiness Transition Fund. Why is this a bunch of tech companies? NVIDIA, Mm -hmm. Alphabet, Amazon, Apple. Well, it's because of how these funds are constructed, which people don't typically understand. These funds are constructed based on ratings. 80% of ESG ratings come from one company, MSCI. How, what is MSCI rating? How do I know what an A plus is versus an A versus a B, B minus? How do they get these ratings? Well, two things people miss. One is it's vertical, not horizontal. So ratings are versus your peers in the industry. 
Chevron is rated against Shell, is rated against Exxon Mobil. It's not Exxon Mobil versus Tesla. It's Exxon Mobil versus Shell. Okay, that's mm. first, which people don't appreciate. The second thing is the ratings are based on the impact of the planet on the company, not the impact of the company on the planet. So what MSCI is rating is how resilient is a company's P&L to E, S, or G shocks. So for example, is your factory in a floodplain? Is your factory um, have workers that are likely to go on strike because you're not paying them properly? These are the risks that MSCI is looking at when they come up with a rating. So it's the E, S, or G shocks on a company due to things like climate change, not the influence of the company on the planet, Okay, which is really confusing for people because they assumed ESG, it's about how good the company is, it has nothing to do with it. This is why Elon Musk went crazy when his Tesla was downgraded as an ESG stock because of governance issues, right? Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, we're the we're one of the you know most enabling companies in terms of the e revolution, and we just got downgraded. It's because he didn't understand that that's not what they're rating. And the CEO of MSCI has come out publicly and said in an article called that Bloomberg wrote called the ESG Mirage, which is excellent, and I recommend it. He came out and said. We don't think that most retail investors, institutional investors, or portfolio managers understand what we're doing, okay? And yet, that's how ESG funds are compiled. So that makes sense that a company like Apple or Amazon or Alphabet could make it into an ESG fund, but it doesn't have anything to do with U.S. carbon readiness transition. Wow, that's pretty startling. Yeah. <laughs> So what do we do about this? How do we fix this, uh, fix this mess? What should M MSCI, is it MSCI, that's the company? What yeah. should they be doing when they evaluate? Uh, what's the way forward here? So As we get up this delusional sort of cul-de-sac that we seem to be in. So Timothy started to highlight uh, an important distinction that I think is part of the solution, which is according to the International, I IEA, International Energy Agency, they say that we need now about $4 trillion a year of spending on climate transition technologies, essentially, to transition from where we are to a world of less than one and a half degrees. Hmm. For the first time last year, globally, we spent over a trillion. So we're about a quarter at the rate we're supposed to be at. By the way, that number goes up each year. So the $4 trillion doesn't stay $4 trillion, $5 trillion, $6 trillion, $7 trillion. Um, and so to the extent we don't double each year or even more than that, we're falling further behind our ability to deliver a safe planet. And so people need to understand the distinction between climate transition dollars, which are the ones that IEA is looking at, and ESG. They're unrelated. Okay, unrelated. The, the Venn diagram is almost empty between the two. So I think that where we have to focus is I don't care if MSCI changes the ratings or not. Okay, because it's still a secondary market thing. It's not where I would focus my energy or attention. Where we have to focus on energy and tension is how do we get more capital deployed to address climate transition? What falls in that bucket? Well, categories like uh, climate tech venture investing, right, which had a great growth run for about three or four years. It's gotten crushed this year because of higher interest rates. But investment of venture dollars in future solutions around battery, long-term battery storage, uh, hydrogen energy, um, a whole bunch of technologies in ag tech that are required for us to decarbonize are essential. That's one area. A second area is uh, impact investing, which is mostly, I'm focused on the kind that is concessionary, mostly family funds and rich people who are willing to invest in solutions and not require market-based returns. But the biggest source of capital comes from multilateral financial institutions and nation states and blended capital arrangements between public and private uh, institutions. A good example of this is there's, a, there's a, a form of financing that's called Just Energy Transition Partnerships, which are focused on helping countries that are principally coal dependent transition their grids. So, for example, Bangladesh is 98% run on coal right now. OK, and they don't have the money, even if solar is better per unit than coal, 
They don't have the CapEx to make that transition. And also, cost of capital in these markets, like Bangladesh, African markets, developing markets, is typically 3x what it is in Western markets. And so whereas an investment in solar might work in the U.S., if your interest rate is 3x U.S. rates in Bangladesh, it doesn't work, even if you had the capital. And they don't have the capital. So just energy transition partnerships are an attempt to fuse multilateral financial institutions, commercial banks, nation states to create a blend of capital, some of which is concessionary and loans that are forgiven, some is genuine loans, et cetera, to help spur this transition. And so far, there, there are three that I know of that would be in the process of or have been negotiated for South Africa, Indonesia, and Vietnam, both all in the billions of dollars that fuse kind of these various forms of capital and layer different types of capital to push and support a transition these are really important things. That I mean, that's the way we actually accelerate a, a climate transition. It's not whether your sister is buying an ESG fund at BlackRock. It's whether we are investing primary capital in either innovation or transition. So I, I love that distinction. It's like we've all fallen into this marketing trap of you know, reading in the Wall Street Journal, the FT, all of this money going to ESG. And then we sit back and go, oh, thank God. Isn't that a good thing? And you're sort of opening up the story and saying, ain't necessarily fo- so. In fact, it's not so at all. <laughs> it's um, it's not going in the right direction. So it reads to a, to an interesting discussion about what is the role of private industry versus government in trying to make this transition because uh, you know there's a whole other school that we can get into that you've written about which is the accounting and if we had better metrics would companies react differently so what this basically means is there's a lot of externalities uh things that we're using or taking from the environment that have a cost or should have a cost associated with them where we're destroying natural capital um, how do we capture that? How do we measure that? Carbon is the, the most obvious one. The next one that's coming up is biodiversity. Um, but if we could capture the cost of these things and companies could then put them into their accounting, then we'd have a true cost of production. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying it for, for the moment. But that's one angle, right, Ken, where we could go down and we could say if we had better accounting and better metrics, and it gets a little bit into what you were talking about before in terms of some of your scope three uh, complexity. But is that the way we should be going? Is, is that the way that we, we should be forcing private companies to price those externalities, have them show up on their P&Ls or on their balance sheets, and, and, and then hope that the market will react and force them to do the right thing? Oh, a lot there. Um, so I don't think... Uh, ESG is a uh, a random uh, one-off win-win solution, meaning we have a 50-year history since Mm. publication of the Limits to Growth in 1972 of trying to have companies lead the way to solve environmental and social challenges. And Mm. you look over five or 10-year periods and find things like Eco-efficiency, which was led by Amory Lovins at the Rocky Mountain Institute that said, you know, um, we can solve these problems easily because the, the, the math works in terms of ROI. And it does for certain things like LED light bulbs. But that's one, maybe one tenth of the solutions actually are win-win. The other 90% are NPV negative. We've tried things like fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. We've tried creating shared value. A lot of these come out of academic institutions that then become consulting firms around win-win, meaning just like ESG is a quote, win-win, win for the planet, win for the investor. Well, I think we typically find ourselves disappointed and that these ideas typically fade after five or seven year cycles. We go on to the next one. Why is that? It's because you know business doesn't want to be regulated. And mm. so it's great if there are win-wins because then the planet wins and business wins and people are profitable and share prices go up and that's terrific. Unfortunately, now over the 50 years that we've been trying this and the same time that you know CSR reports have grown exponentially, we have uh, um, 
carbon emissions growing exponentially and ever more destruction. And so I think we should pull up and say, wait a minute, we've tried this corporate voluntary win-win path for a long time. And yes, there are case studies of companies, specific instances that do work, but don't translate a case study into empirical outcomes. It's not the same. Just because it worked once doesn't work. It's always applicable. And so my view is, uh, okay, second point, you talked about, okay, what you measure, you manage. And so maybe what we should be doing is focusing on measuring and dollarizing externalities. There's an enormous movement, mostly in Europe, a lot in the US though, that was came out of Harvard uh, called yep. Impact Accounting. At yep. Harvard, it was called the Impact Weighted Accounts Project. And what they say is, look, what you were saying, Timothy, let's dollarize externalities. So if we have a company like Bowen and they're reporting on their economic value added today because they're required to, so here's their EBITDA, let's also create a set of accounts for their social value added. Do they add or detract from social welfare? And let's create dollars associated with each. And then let's do it for their environmental impacts and let's do it for their communal impacts. And then let's sum across all these areas and see, are they ultimately a net positive or negative societally. To do that work is enormously complicated, okay? And accounting firms love this idea because they get to employ hundreds and thousands of people, literally, to do this accounting. Mm. The problem for me isn't that we don't know that ExxonMobil mm. is a net negative because of the externalities. We know this already, okay? Yeah. Whether we get to the precision around, is it a net negative of X or Y? Who cares? You know, what we, what we, it's not the measurement that's preventing ExxonMobil from making a conversion to a renewable energy supplier. Yeah. It's the profits associated with fossil fuels. And so I think given limited time and bandwidth, focusing our energies on impact accounting to precisely measure externalities is not a helpful exercise. I think mm. instead, with one unit of energy, what I would propose we do is focus on pricing externalities, what you were saying, because businesses mm. respond to those signals, not theoretically what might my P&L look like were I charged with externalities. But if I did mm. have to pay $200 a metric ton of carbon, what substitutes would I pursue? How would I change my right. pricing strategy? How would I change my sourcing strategy? And by the way, this is starting to happen. In Europe, there is this mechanism called CBAM, which is the carbon border adjustment mechanism that covers seven different commodities, aluminum, steel, et cetera, and says to people outside Europe, okay, here's the carbon intensity associated with a ton of steel made in the EU. If you want to import to the EU, you have to hit that mark. If you don't, you pay a penalty per metric ton. Mm -hmm. And you can yeah. buy credits to offset that. But yeah. we are we're insisting that for each commodity, this is the mark you have to hit. And if you don't, you pay. And you can say, wait a minute, but don't we need those taxes to be uniform and global? And the answer is no. Ideally, they would be. But if you take a block the size of the EU and say, for these seven commodities, this is the mark you have to hit, it's going to force companies okay, yeah. to decarbonize faster or pay or avoid yeah. And yeah. so um, that's an example, not of us focusing as much on measuring all externalities, but just figuring out for a commodity, what's the carbon intensity of it and pay a tax, a border tax. Yeah. And those are the kind of things that I think will have a profound impact. So you picked the carbon market and that that's a fascinating one because it's been relatively well researched and there's been a lot of effort put into how do we track carbon all the way down to satellites now measuring things like that. and. It seems to me, I was at a conference last week where this came up, uh, the next thing is biodiversity. You know, the destruction of biodiversity and increasingly commercial efforts to create offsets for biodiversity, which in essence says, you know, if you are doing harm of 10 units of biodiversity, you can buy from Raj 10 credits for biodiversity because Raj has invested in a wonderful biodiverse farm and is doing that. Um, is that the way we're going to go by one-offing some of these things? Let me do carbon and then we'll do biodiversity and then we'll do, is that a viable way of going forward? It's worrisome to me. There's, uh, if you just stick to carbon for a second, I'd recommend to your listeners a great article that appeared in the New Yorker 
I think two weeks ago, called The Great Cash for Carbon Hustle, um, which yeah, describes um, the carbon offset market and the largest verifier called Vera of carbon offsets and a project in Africa, which is one of the largest projects in the world that was uh, uh, used to offset by companies like Delta and Nestle and others that turned out to be mostly fraudulent. Um, and so there are real problems even in the carbon offset market before you get to biodiversity around things like additionality, meaning mm. would this have happened absent the carbon credit or not? Because if it would have happened anyway, why are we paying for it? And things mm. like leakage and permanence. And it's very difficult to assure that what you're paying for today won't get burned down tomorrow or that what you're buying today doesn't cause someone to do something 20 feet over that they wouldn't have done anyway around leakage. And so carbon offset market is a, um, what's the technical term? It's a mess at this point, okay? <laughs> and that's the one you said we know how to measure, okay? And so I'm worried uh, about it. On the other hand, we do need more capital deployed to advance solutions. And governments don't have the bandwidth that we require. We need private capital invested as well. And so I'm not conceptually opposed to the idea of getting markets more engaged. I do worry that absent appropriate verification and audit, we end up with this kind of gaming of the system, even in carbon, for getting biodiversity. And I'll tell mm -hmm. you just one other thing which I found instructive. I'd mentioned to you that um, one of our daughters works at uh, Conservation International which is one of the largest environmental NGOs that does excellent work around the world. And she works in the biodiversity team. So I've learned a good deal about this world from her. And uh, when we were talking about credits, she said to me, Dad, what do you think of the idea of biodiversity credits? Are you for them or against them? And I said, well, you know, here's the complexity of this and here's what's going on in carbon. And so I'm not sure. And I need we need more money in markets. And she said, you know, I I have a different question. This may sound stupid, may sound simple. I said, what's the question? She said, why don't we just mandate that certain parts of the world legally are off limits? We know from mapping where the intense area of biodiversity are, okay? Um, we know where carbon is sequestered and there's actually amazing overlap between the two. Why don't we mandate that? And I said, you know, what you ask is ostensibly a naive question is actually the right approach as opposed to relying on markets to solve these problems. But the problem is that a lot of these places where carbon is sequestered that are biodiversity rich are very poor countries. And they have the choice, for example, of drilling for oil in Ecuador to disturb the Yasuni National Forest, but provide income for their people who are very poor or preserve nature and not get paid for it. And it's really difficult in that environment, based on the system we operate in, to do, quote, the right thing for the planet. By the way, I'm pl pleased to report that in Ecuador, they had a public referendum on this question, and they decided not to drill, okay, mm -hmm. for oil, which is incredible, you know, given mm -hmm. the amount of money they're foregoing. Um, but I thought her question was instructive. It's just like, what do we value? And do we put a price on nature? And how do we support uh, poor places in the Congo and Ecuador subject that are stores of biodiversity. And I don't know, that to me is a, a more straightforward and likely to succeed approach, but harder, I guess, politically to, to make happen. I think Jeff, Ecuador is one of the countries that has given nature rights under the law. And people can sue on behalf of nature. Our, our friends of the Pachamama Alliance you know, have, been, have been part of that. Uh, but what you were saying about the carbon thing, I, I did read that article in the New Yorker and it reminds me of that quote from Eric Hoffer that every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket. And I think you've seen, you know, that that illustrates that uh, that perfectly. And this whole offsets and all of that is kind of, it, it reminds me of the Catholic Church practice in the past of selling indulgences, right? You can leave up <laughs> the license to sin. Or somebody else can, you know, pay the penalty on your behalf, etc. I agree with your daughter. You know, I think that's cutting to the chase. There, you know, we really need to move in uh, in that direction. Yeah. So, what, what do you see as coming next uh, again? What's what is your focus now? Um, you are part of the investment world as well. 
How are you deploying these ideas? So I, um, as I've mentioned, I believe that we need policy to help lift the floor in certain industries. And the one that I come from is fashion and apparel. And so I've been spending a good deal of time the last two years on architecting and trying to support the passage of a piece of legislation in uh, New York State, which would be the first consequential piece of legislation in the United States to govern the practices of the fashion industry. So whereas the EU has passed uh, a lot of legislation on this front, the U.S. has done almost nothing. And so I've worked with a woman named Maxine Beda. Maxine is a lawyer who started a fashion marketplace years ago for ethical fashion, realized there was none, decided to close the business and took a year off and traveled the world to understand why while pregnant. And she started in a West Texas cotton field and ended up in a dump in Ghana visiting uh, four country, four continents in between. The book is called Unraveled, which won awards that she wrote. Mm -hmm. And then she started a, an NGO called the NSI, which I joined her in helping uh, kick off. It stands for New Standard Institute. And the first piece of legislation that we've architected is called the New York Fashion Act. Mm -hmm. And the New York Fashion Act says, if you're a brand that sells in excess of $100 million globally that chooses to sell in the state of New York, public or private, um, you must comply with the following frameworks that already exist. So this bill doesn't create any new frameworks. It says for due diligence on your factories, you have to comply with OECD requirements for due diligence. It says that for reporting, you have to report on the following things publicly, where your factories are, tier one, two, three, and four, uh, by address, whether you pay a living wage or not, how much water you use, what percentage of recycled materials you use, how much carbon you emit, things like that. It has to be in electronic format. It has to be available publicly annually on your site. You have to also sign up for and be approved by an organization called Science-Based Targets. Science-Based Targets is the largest organization globally that validates companies' plans to decarbonize. And it requires setting of both short and long-term goals and requires that those goals be in uh, compliance with planetary boundaries. And so 400 fashion companies already have signed up for and been approved for science-based targets. It says if you're above a certain threshold, you have to go through that process. And different than any of the legislation I've seen, it also says if you don't deliver on the these goals, at the discretion of the Attorney General in the state of New York, you can be fined up to 2% of global revenue. So my former company, you know, there's a $35 million fine if you, let's say, sign up for science-based targets but miss your targets. Now, there is a remediation process. So if you miss your targets, you have 18 months to remediate. If you don't, then the attorney general can issue this fine. But, you know, a fine like that puts teeth in the bill. And the point is not to find companies. The point is that we can't rely on Stella McCartney, Johnny, Patagonia, Eileen Fisher, and seven other great companies to decarbonize the industry because they represent less than 1% of production. So unless H&M, Inditex, Shein, Nike all collaborate on solutions, we won't advance decarbonization in Bangladesh, where, by the way, it's the second largest country for apparel manufacturing in the world. We won't decarbonize there without support from the brands, okay, to engage with multilateral institutions, banks, country, et cetera. And they'll do it if it's in their financial interest. If we just say, hey, it would be cool, cool if you tried to do this which is what we said. And if you'd sign up for these voluntary things, that'd be great, which a lot of good companies have done. The problem is I would venture today, absent such like regulation, less than 5% of the companies will deliver on their commitments today. Not because they're not trying, but because the system doesn't incentivize them. Imagine, for example, if you were a CEO of a public company and you got on a call at the end of the quarter and said, hey, I have great news to report. Our revenues shrank by 12%, but our carbon emissions came down by 20. And so on an intensity basis, we're on that journey to decarbonize, and we're proud of it. Questions, please. What the questions would be. They wouldn't be, hey, uh, Raj, congratulations on your decarbonization efforts. Can you talk a little more about that? I'd be like, what happened to your top line? That's the world we live in. That doesn't mean that the CEOs are wrong. They're operating based on the assumptions and strategies and incentives and structures that are in place. So we have to change those, have to change the rules, have to change the incentives if you want behavior to change. Just relying on good actors who are doing this for the good of their heart and soul and they want to sell their purpose is, is proven to be insufficient. 
Are you familiar with what uh, Paul Bogdan has been doing to imagine where he's been trying to bring together most of the major players in certain industries? Yeah, Paul Pullman in the fashion industry is co-founder of a group called the Fashion Pact. He, oh. along with the CEO of Caring, are trying to get CEOs together to make public commitments and to do things like jointly secure uh, renewable energy credits and power purchase agreements and things like that. And they have had some success doing that. I worry, however, that that is but another of these voluntary consortia-led solutions that ultimately are insufficient. So in the apparel industry, we've got a lot. We've got the Sustainable Power Coalition. We've got the Fashion Pact. We've got the Global Fashion Alliance. We have the Textile Exchange. We have, you know, literally tens of uh, consortia that are made up of players in the industry to try to voluntarily decarbonize. Um, different than any of those consortia, NSI, which I mentioned that Maxine leads, takes no money from anyone mm -hmm. in industry. Okay. And the reason we do that isn't because we don't like industry or don't like money, right? We could use the money and the support, but because we think you'll end up with watered down solutions that don't address the, the problem. And it's harder to do it that way because we need money to lobby. We need money to you know play the game politically, but we can't take it from companies because we've seen how it corrupts. You know, can given the uh, political paralysis in the U.S., in Washington, I don't see prospects of passing these kinds of laws at the federal level. Are, are we going to have to rely on states like California and New York and some of the other larger economies within the U.S. to nudge this movement alongside what Europe is doing to get making shift happen? So I would say two things. One is that the U.S. passed at a federal level the Inflation Reduction Act, which is poorly named, but it's the largest piece of climate legislation passed in the history of the world. And it's having a massively, profoundly positive effect on decarbonization in the United States as we speak. And it's happening mostly in red states, interestingly, in large part because they're non-union states. And that's where the capital's being deployed. I mean, in the billions, if not trillions of dollars already. And so I'm very enthused. I believe that the U.S. will actually deliver on its Paris Climate Accord commitment to reduce carbon emissions by more than 40 percent from a 2005 baseline because of the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, you can say, whoa, that sounds really good. You sounded like you're pretty bummed about other things. Well, the issue here is U.S. isn't that important. U.S. is important as a signal. OK, but it's 13 percent of global emissions. India is more important than the U.S. China is more important than India. OK, and so, yes, it's good that the U.S. is acting, but it's insufficient. That's first part. Second part is I think that state led solutions where you can't get stuff done federally are just fine. I mean, there's no way people can't comply with a California reg if they want to stay in business. And same thing with New York. If you're in the fashion business, you imagine you saying you're going to walk away from New York. Uh, by the way, when you do this, so far, four other states have reached out to us for the exact wording of the legislation. And they're all states that have Democratic houses uh, in both legislatures and a Democratic governor. And when you add those states in, one of whom is California, you have a fact, essentially de facto federal legislation if you get New York and California to pass anything. So the Inflation Reduction Act was what, $400 billion of spending? How much was, what was the amount? So that was the amount they said initially when they passed it. Current estimates are it's in the trillions of dollars, meaning it was open. The first estimate was that it was going to uh, be $400 billion. It's $387 billion. And now it's in the trillions um, because a lot of the uptake on the subsidies that were in the bill have flown way beyond what they were originally estimated to be. So the government is going to spend trillions. Yes, the government is spending trillions on subsidies. So the better way to do this, by the way, The Economist had a great piece about this, is they looked at subsidies versus taxes as a way to accomplish decarbonization. And they yeah. found that taxes or taxation was about twice as productive or said differently, subsidies cost twice as much as taxes. Um, no. But uh, I'll take subsidies versus nothing, meaning, you know, heat pump adoption, EV purchases, Batteries, hydrogen, all these things are now subsidized massively in the United States. You buy an EV now, as long as the parts are made above a certain threshold in the U.S., it's a $7,500 credit off the top. 
Um, same thing, you know, heat pumps, et cetera. So, I mean, there's enormous transition happening as we speak in the United States. Factories, foreign factories yeah. being built now in the United States because of these requirements on U.S. content. I mean, so it's it's massive what's going on. So does that make you an optimist now that we're going to start And to get there? Very, very optimistic about the impact of policy to change vectors. Someone said the other day something I thought was really good, which is, you know, uh, commerce is essentially a sailboat. And what it needs is the wind of policy to direct it. Okay, that wasn't exactly what they said, but it's something like that. And I see, think we're seeing that work when it comes to the Inflation Reduction Act. That's not, but what I mentioned is I'm optimistic about the U.S. ability to decarbonize. I'm not optimistic about the globe's ability. U.S. isn't hard relative to China and India. China and India have air pollution problems, particulate matter problems. They have keep the lights on problems. They have keep people out of the streets problems and employed. They need all of the above in terms of energy. And so it's a lot harder uh, problem, I think, in those places. Um, than it is in the U.S. Wow. Wow. Well, Ken, this has been a fascinating walk through what I think is real talk with real solutions on what we need to be addressing as we move forward on the climate issue. I'm glad we end on an optimistic note with regards to the U.S. At least there's an example there. And I think with the EU and the U.S. starting to make progress on this, it's going to ratchet up the pressure on China and India to be able to sort of say, hey, listen, we're starting to get our act together. What are you going to be doing? So hopefully there'll be a knock-on effect from that. So thank you, Ken. We really appreciated your candor and your, your just deep intellect on this. It's really impressive. Well, thank you guys for having me. It was fun, and I hope it's uh, useful for your listeners, and I'll look forward to remaining in touch. Great. And thank you for our listeners for listening in on this week's podcast. If you enjoyed it, go over to Apple Tunes, give us a rating, leave some comments. And whatever channel you're listening on, feel free, of course, to hit the subscribe button so you can hear us every week when we come out. And Ken, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Tech Sounds, thanks for your production help. And Peck de Monterey, thank you for helping support and produce this show. And we'll see you all next week. <laughs>